following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures this morning and turn with me to the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. I'd like to begin by reading the chapter, and so as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, hope-arousing, Christ-exalting words of the eternal triune God. Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. 
but the boat by his but, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves for the wind was against them and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea they were terrified and said it is a ghost and they cried out in fear but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying take heart I am do not be afraid and Peter answered him Lord if it is you command me to come to you on the water he said come so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus but when he saw the wind he was afraid and beginning to sink he cried out Lord save me Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him oh you of little faith why did you doubt and when they got into the boat the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying truly you are the son of god and when they had crossed over they came to land at gennesaret and when the men of that place recognized him they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well Grace Community Church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In 1873, the pre-Raphaelite artist from London by the name of Holman Hunt painted a picture that tends to leave a lasting impression, I think, in the minds of biblically informed believers. It's a picture of Jesus as a young man working in a carpenter shop. It shows him stretching out his hands, his arms, after sawing a piece of wood. And the shadow that it casts on the wall behind him shows a silhouette of a man stretched out as though he's hanging on a cross. The painting is titled, The Shadow of Death. And although personally I don't care for paintings or portraits of Jesus, I appreciate this painting because it captures the reality that the shadow of the cross loomed over the entire life of the Lord Jesus until the time of his death came. I can't help but wonder when it was as a young child or as a young man that the reality of death by crucifixion settled into his mind as a human being. I can imagine moments in his life when something reminded him of the coming cross, whether it was seeing criminals hanging on crosses, crucified by the Romans, or whether it was seeing nails and hammers in his father's carpenter shop. We can't even begin to fathom what it must have been like for him as a young man to hear in the synagogue passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 read aloud. And thinking to himself, these passages are talking about me when I'm older. We find clues such as in Luke chapter 12 that suggest that Jesus felt like his entire life was hemmed in by the reality of his coming crucifixion. And as we come this morning to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew seems to take a detour from the main storyline of Jesus and his ministry to focus for a moment on the gruesome death of John the Baptist, who you remember was the forerunner for the Lord Jesus. 
And based upon how Jesus reacted to the news of John's death, it's no wonder why most scholars see John's death as a preview of what lies ahead at the end of the road for Jesus. When it comes to the number of chapters, we come this morning to the halfway point in Matthew's gospel. And when it comes to the overall structure and layout of Matthew's gospel, we also come to a new section where Jesus, as it were, withdraws and retreats from teaching the crowds to spending more intimate time with his disciples. He still interacts with the crowds, but for the most part, all the major teaching moments are going to be reserved for his disciples. Chapter 13 ends, you remember, with another quite shocking event. Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. They flippantly dismiss Jesus as just the carpenter's son. He's the carpenter's son. And when we cross over into chapter 14 this morning... It seems like Herod, of all people, arrives at a higher estimation of Jesus because he concludes that at minimum, Jesus is a resurrected prophet. It just goes to illustrate that, like many other places in the New Testament, Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Matthew 14, I think, breaks up nicely into four sections and so that'll be the way we make our way through it this morning. Just to give you a roadmap of where we're going this morning, in verses 1 through 12, Matthew calls our attention to the king's martyr, which serves as a preview of his coming death. In verses 13 to 21, Matthew points out the king's mercy by recalling a picture, by retelling, I should say, a picture of his satisfying goodness. He paints a picture of his satisfying goodness. In verses 22 to 23, Matthew brings before us the reality of the king's majesty, where we see a portrayal of his divine sonship. And fourthly, in verses 34 through 36, the chapter concludes with Matthew calling our attention to the king's might, where we see a portrait of his restorative power. And so that's where we're going this morning the king's martyr, the king's mercy, the king's majesty, and the king's might. And so we'll begin by considering verses 1 to 12, the king's martyr, a preview of his coming death. Notice how Matthew begins in verse 1. He says, at that time, referring to the time Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He was responsible for what was going on in his region. And so this news gets to Herod. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He was convinced that this was John the Baptist come back from the dead, perhaps to come back and confront Herod. And he says, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. His conscience is eating him up. But what an irony, right? That the people who should have received Jesus, the people in Nazareth, reject Jesus. And this wicked ruler, Herod Antipas, ends up with a higher estimation of him than them. Little did Herod know, however, that this is the same Jesus that his father, Herod the Great, attempted to kill when he was a child, as we saw back in Matthew chapter 2. Most believe that this Herod, Antipas, was a teenager when that whole ordeal happened. 
You'll recall that Herod the Great ordered the slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or under because he was threatened by the news of the birth of the Messiah. Herod Antipas, by the way, was the Roman ruler of the regions of Galilee and Perea. And the language here suggests that Herod has a guilty conscience. He ordered the execution of John the Baptist, a man whom he himself, at least for a while, respected and regarded as a prophet with a powerful message. Mark tells us that Herod feared John. Mark tells us that he knew that he was a righteous and holy man. And Mark also tells us that whenever John the Baptist preached, Herod was perplexed, and yet he heard John gladly. He liked listening to John the Baptist preach. He seemed to be a, when it comes to Herod, he seemed to be a mixture of the first two soils in the parable of the sower. Hard-hearted and without understanding, and the little that he did understand, he rejoiced in, but never took root, never went down. Nothing of John's message penetrated the surface of Herod's heart. And so his true colors end up coming out when he orders John's execution. He hears about the fame of Jesus and his guilty conscience mixed with some superstition concludes that Jesus must be John the Baptist who has come back from the dead. Notice verse 3. For Herod has seized John. He had seized him and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, in other words, it wasn't just one time. John had been preaching again and again that it was not lawful for him to have her. Herodias, by the way, was the wife of Herod's half-brother, Philip. Although it was permissible to marry the widow of one's dead brother, the law prohibited marrying the wife of a brother who was still alive, and that was the case in this situation. Herod Antipas was clearly guilty of adultery, and John called him out several times. Jerome said that John the Baptist preferred to be endangered by the king rather than to be, for the sake of flattery, unmindful of the commands of God. John Calvin said that where others attacked and cursed Herod behind his back, John alone bluntly rebuked him to his face in an effort to bring him to repentance. But as Matthew Henry wrote, faithful reproofs, if they do not profit, they usually provoke. And that's what happened here with Herod. Eventually, Herod needed to silence the voice of God that was coming to him through John the Baptist and his preaching. And it just goes to show that the word of God will always have an effect on you. It will either harden you or it will humble you. Always. And so I ask you this morning, as you are exposed to the preaching of God's word week in and week out, as you read the word throughout the week or hear preaching throughout the week, is the word humbling you or is the word hardening you? Is the word like a, a, a cultivation tool in that field, just breaking up the fallow ground, breaking up that ground, softening that ground? Or is the word serving as a type of hammer that is just hardening the ground, beating that ground? Verse 5 says, And though... John the uh, Herod wanted to put him to death. He feared the people because they held John the Baptist to be a prophet. So he wants to put him to death, but he knows that there might be an uprising because all the people know that John is a prophet. 
Herod's response to John is very similar to the Pharisees and their response to Jesus. Both parties want these men of God dead, but they fear the people because they recognize that John was a prophet. And at least for a little while, the people saw Jesus as a prophet working mighty wonders. Well, the time comes, verse 6, notice, for a birthday party. When, John's, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. In another account, you know that he promised up to half of his kingdom, which wasn't even his to give. He's obviously intoxicated and drunk. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. I mean, the story just turns gruesome very quickly. And the king was sorry. His heart obviously sunk. But because of his oaths and his guests, i.e. the fear of man, he commanded it to be given. And so, verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. You could imagine just the shock and awe in the party. I mean, it was probably very likely that there were other platters there with boar's heads and other animals cooked. And yet this one platter comes out, and it's John the Baptist's head. And you could imagine the shock and awe for a moment, but then the drinking continues, and then it, the shock turns to laughter, and then the celebration continues. The Jews in that day considered birthday celebrations to be like pagan events. We're told in history that the birthdays of the Herods were known for being lavish and extravagant and debaucherous. In fact, the birthdays of Herod kind of became a proverbial saying during this time because of how lavishly sinful they were. You could imagine verse 11 the courage of John's disciples to then go and take John's body and bury it, knowing that Herodias and Herod were fully aware that as John's disciples, they probably believed the same things John did regarding their adulterous relationship. Nevertheless, they go and they take the body and they go and bury it. And they went and told Jesus. This phrase, the disciples came and took the body and buried it, is almost identical to what we see at the end of our Lord's life. After he dies on the cross, you remember his disciples, specifically Joseph of Arimathea, goes to Pilate to take the body of Jesus for burial. So I think what Matthew's doing here is laying a foreshadow. This is a preview of what's to come. Jesus gets the news and notice the response. In verse 13, Jesus heard this and he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So we see the king's martyr, which is a preview of his coming death. And we move on now to the king's mercy in verses 13 and following where we see a portrayal of his satisfying goodness. By the way, this whole incident with John the Baptist, you remember back in chapter 11, Jesus said something interesting about John the Baptist. He says, 
the, the prophets and the law, they prophesied all the way up until John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Jews knew very well, based upon the Old Testament scriptures, specifically Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, that before the great, awesome day of the Lord, before the Lord would come and cleanse his temple, an Elijah-type figure would come and prepare the way for the Lord. Listen to Malachi 3.1. Behold, God says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Listen to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What's interesting about this account is that like Elijah from 1 Kings... John, uh, John the Baptist confronts a wicked king and queen. You remember Elijah confronted Ahab and Jezebel and their sin. This latter-day John the Baptist follows in that same pattern, and he confronts Herod, Antipas, and Herodias for their sinful relationship. I mean, there's so many parallels between John the Baptist and Elijah that the gospel writers are bringing out as we make our way through the gospels. But notice the king's mercy now in verses 13 to 21, where we see a picture of his satisfying goodness. Jesus hears this and he withdraws from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. We're not told what he went to do, but no doubt this was a reminder of what was to come. Here again was another shadow of the cross as Holman Hunt would say. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot to the towns. So he goes to be alone, and yet he's followed. And when most people would be tempted to be frustrated because I just need some alone time, just need alone time, the crowds follow him and notice his response. But when he went ashore and saw the great crowd, verse 14 says, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Our Lord Jesus was perfect in his patience, perfect in his pity, absolutely perfect in his compassion. And he is still that way today because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. When he needed perhaps just a moment alone to go and be alone with his father and to reflect upon his coming death, previewed in the death of John the Baptist, the crowds meet him there and his response is amazingly gracious. He welled up with pity and compassion, mercy, if you will. The word speaks of something down in the bowels of someone that is just moved by, by the need of the hour. That was our Lord. He had compassion on the crowds and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The word desolate there refers to something of a wilderness. Matthew, I think, is being intentional because he's about to draw another parallel between Moses in the wilderness feeding the people with manna. God doing it through him, of course. But now the setting is being laid out by Matthew intentionally. This is a wilderness, and the disciples 
come to Jesus and inform him. The day is over. The crowds, they need to be sent away to the towns and villages to buy food for themselves. And notice his response. Jesus said, they need not go away. This was all planned. This was all his sovereign plan. He says, you give them something to eat. And by doing this, I think Jesus is setting up this whole picture. He's setting up this plan to show the disciples their utter insufficiency and inadequacy and his infinite ability and adequacy. He says, you send them. You go get food for them. You give them something to eat. And they said, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. Well, Jesus says, bring them to me. So they bring them, and he orders the crowds to be seated on the grass. <clears throat> Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said what was a typical Hebrew blessing in that day, which sounded something like, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, a second blessing they had for fish as well, who would say, is the creator of the fish of the sea. Blessed are you, king of the universe. So he takes this posture and he looks up and he prays. And what's interesting about this account is that it's not him praying to God, the Father, to do this. Remember that he himself is the one empowered by God, by the Spirit of God, back in the baptism in the Jordan, to do the works of God. And that's important to see because we see him as God, acting as God, speaking as God, healing as God, and providing and creating as God. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and then the disciples gave them to the crowds. So somewhere in here is the act of creation. Literally, the act of creation. He breaks these loaves. There are 5,000 men, by the way, not counting women and children. I mean, if you were to break up these five loaves, each one would have had maybe, maybe a piece of dust to eat at the end. And even if they did that, as some skeptics try to dismiss, they would not have been full. They would not have been satisfied. And the one thing that left an impression in Matthew's mind is they were satisfied. They had to unbutton some buttons, if you will. This is the king's mercy. What a picture of his satisfying goodness. There's so much in this, so much symbolism in this, by the way. I mean, the Lord throughout the ages has been the host of his people. You, remind, you remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup runs over. This is that same shepherd. This is that same Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is God in the flesh hosting this miraculous banquet that stands in sharp contrast with the banquet previously that we saw in Herod's palace. This banquet is in the wilderness, not in the palace. That banquet was marked by sin and gruesome iniquity and blood this feast is marked by satisfa satisfaction and goodness and God's blessing. It's what he came to do. 
This reminds us, by the way, of Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus said that many on that last day will come from the east and the west, referring to Gentiles, and they will all sit down at that grand and glorious banquet with all the patriarchs and all the fathers. What is he talking about? That great eschatological feast where we, as the people of God, will finally sit down with our God and feast forever in his all-satisfying goodness. Note the king's mercy here. What a picture of his satisfying goodness. I ask you this morning, because Jesus is still the bread that came down from heaven. Are you being fed by him? Are you nourished in him today? Can you really look to him and say, you are my sustenance. You are my satisfaction. You are my joy. You are what makes me complete. Colossians says that we are complete in Christ. We lack nothing. No good thing do the people with God lack. He is our shepherd. He sits us down again and again. How many times throughout your Christian life has he sat you down? How many times has he laid you beside still waters and just said, eat of me, feast. Let your heart be glad. Let your mind be filled. Let your soul be restored. Let your spirit be revived. That is what happens, in effect, every time we come to church. should happen as we unpack the word, as we sit under the, the waterfall of God's precious word. We are refreshed, we are restored as we eat of him, as we partake of him, as we drink him in and take him in. We find restoration and we are satisfied. In his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice the end of the account. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. I wonder why Matthew points this out. The disciples have just witnessed an act of sovereign creation, glorious creation. 5,000 people, plus men and women, satisfied, have their bellies full. And you could imagine the disciples in it all as they're distributing this abundance of bread and fish, thinking, what is going on here? Are those, you got, did you get, get that party back there? Yeah, 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 take this to them. I don't think they've eaten yet. And they're just bringing, more bread is coming out as he's handing out to his disciples. More bread, more bread, more creation, more acts of the creation of, of bread and fish. It's amazing. And this just goes to show that the Lord also takes care of not his people, but his people at work. The disciples are filled themselves. By the way, the baskets here are not, you're not to, be, you're not to think of a little, you know, little picnic basket. This is used all over the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe a heavy sack that, w- that could take, that, that uh, warriors could take, and they could have all their supplies they need, rope and tools and, and, and blankets and, and so forth. These were baskets that you would ha- hang on your back. They were, they were decently big baskets, and there was 12 left over. Jesus is, in effect, saying, as you go forth to pour out my goodness to people, I will ensure that you yourselves are taken care of. And that's true of you today. 
We saw a few weeks ago at our prayer meeting, one of the Proverbs talks about that those who water will themselves be abundantly watered. That is, as you pour forth your life in the service of Christ and his people and in the Great Commission, give yourself to be spent and to spend for his glory and his fame, he will not leave you hungry. He will not leave you empty. He will make sure that you have everything you need to continue as a wife, serving your family, loving your family, loving your husband. Continue to make sure that you as a husband have everything you need to continue pouring out yourself, your time for your wife and your children. As you go out and make disciples, he will make sure you have everything you need, the wisdom, the patience, the boldness, everything you need to continue sharing the gospel with those who need it. He takes care of his laborers. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So we see the king's mercy, the king's martyr. But we come thirdly in our text to verses 22 through 33, where we see the king's majesty. And here we have a portrayal of his divine sonship, his divine sonship. Look at verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself, now we're told, to pray. I think this is what he went to do initially when he got interrupted by the crowds on the shore. But now he gets what he's after, time with his father. And friends, you might say, why would he, the son of God, empowered by the spirit of God, who lives perfectly in the fellowship of God, without sin, perfect in holiness, why would he need to pray? Could it be that he just wanted to pray? So, ta- so, so many times we think of prayer as just something to do, not somewhere to be. Oh, I gotta pray today, I gotta pray today. You mean you have to spend time with the God in whose presence is fullness of joy, you have to do that? Oh, friends, we get to do that. We get to pray, we get to linger in his presence. He invites us in to unburden ourselves. He says, bring all your cares, all your stresses, all your anxieties, throw them upon me, I care for you. That's the language of 1 Peter. Cast all your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. I believe that Jesus, when he prays, because of what we're told so many places in the New Testament, that he was probably interceding for his disciples but also just spending time with his father. He loved the father. This is the one human being who has loved God perfectly his entire life. And I say perfectly because if he ever did it imperfectly, it would have been sin and that would have disqualified him in his work. Every moment of his life, he loved his father with perfection. And we see that here in his desire just to spend time in his presence. So he goes and he's alone in order to pray, to spend time with his father as our high priest, perhaps to intercede for his disciples. Again, Matthew's setting up some very similar language to the Old Testament. Not only is he the true and better Moses of Deuteronomy 18, you remember again and again and again, uh, another prophet like me will be raised up in the last days. That's Jesus. 
He's the better Moses, the greater Moses, the true Moses, who brings down from heaven bread to eat for his people. But here we see again some parallels to Moses on the mountain. Goes up, ascends the mount, and his disciples came. Notice, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten. The idea is being assaulted by the waves. I mean, this is not a calm storm. This is something treacherous. I mean, it's not treacherous. This is, to this is a torment. This is, this, is a, this is a brutal storm. The wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which was somewhere between three in the morning and six in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea, walking on the sea. And notice their response. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. It is a ghost. What's interesting here is the word that he used, the word that he, they used for a ghost is not really a ghost as we would think of it. The word refers to any visual manifestation of something or someone that is normally invisible and that inspires fear or shock or awe. In the wisdom of Solomon, the word is used to describe monsters that appear in nightmares. Wisdom, 1715. Philo used it to describe dreams and fantasies. Josephus used the term to describe a, a holy angel once. In, in Jewish writings, they were referred to as different theophanies or sightings of God in the Old Testament. So it doesn't clearly indicate that they really believe that there's a, a ghost here. But what I found most interesting here is that Josephus translates this very similar to Exodus 3.3, where Moses turns aside to see this great appearance or this great sight. That same word is used to describe what the disciples saw that night. So again, Matthew's drawing all these connections back to the Old Testament. That burning bush that Moses turned aside, that great sight, this is the same word that's used to describe that. They saw this great sight, and they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. And they cried out in fear, and immediately Jesus does to them what God throughout the Old Testament has always done to his people. As soon as they give him the proper reverence and fear, he is quick to stoop down, as it were, and say, do not be afraid. It is I. And notice what he says. Take heart. Your word, your, your translation says, it is I. The word is literally, I am. I am. Which takes us back again to that burning bush where God reveals himself to Moses as the I am. Moses says, I'm going to go before the people. What am I to tell Pharaoh? What am I to tell them? Who sent me? God says, tell them that I am sent you. The self-sufficient, eternal, eternally existent God. I am. Jesus is clearly claiming deity here. Do not be afraid. Well, now the camera focuses on another individual, and it's Peter. And Peter answers him, Lord, if it is you, and perhaps a better translation is, Lord, since it's you, it's not indicating doubt in Peter's mind per se, but he knows it's him. 
Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And so watch, watch, watch what Peter does here. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Can you imagine what's going on in Peter's mind? I'm so fascinated. This, of all the disciples, is Peter. Unquestionably, the one who would become the leader of the disciples. Peter needed this. Jesus knew that Peter needed this. This would be the one who, at the end of our Lord's life, just before his crucifixion, would deny that he knew Jesus. And not to a king, but to a servant girl that he shouldn't have been afraid of. When he realizes it, he goes and weeps bitterly, and he repents, and he comes back. The Lord restores his soul as the good shepherd, and then we see Peter boldly proclaiming the Christ in the book of Acts. This is the same Peter, this Peter who would walk before magistrates and kings and peoples to testify the Lord Jesus. This is the same Peter now walking on water to go and meet Jesus, defying the laws of, defying natural laws, as it were. I mean, it's amazing how many critics try to, and skeptics try to discredit these things. They'll say, well, they're walking on a sandbar. They're walking on a sandbar. By the way, you don't find sandbars in this type of sea, especially in the middle of the lake. They're far from the land. And Matthew tells us that in the earlier part for a reason, so that you're not thinking this is a sandbar. No, Jesus is walking on water and he commands his disciple to come forth and walk on the water as well. And as Peter makes his way to Jesus, he takes his eyes off of Jesus. When he saw the wind, notice he's no longer mindful of Christ. He sees the wind. How prone we are to distraction, aren't we? Our eyes are on Christ. We're walking on water, as it were, triumphant over sin and the flesh and the world. And as soon as we take our eyes off of him, we begin to sink very quickly. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, We should be looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of God. We are to take our eyes and fix them on him and keep them on him. And his word, his glory. And Peter begins to sink. Imagine that feeling of being on top of the world, as it were, and then instantly he begins to sink. And immediately, immediately, He cries out, Lord, save me. The reason I titled this section, The King's Majesty, a portrayal of his divine sonship, is because notice all the clues in this section that point to his majesty as the God of heaven. He's walking on the sea. He claims to be the great I am. Peter calls him Lord. Jesus enables him to walk on water as well. But this prayer is found how many times in the Old Testament? Yahweh, save me. Have you ever read the Psalms? What's the oft-repeated phrase in the Psalms? Lord, save. Lord, save me. This is a picture of what he came to do, friends. This is not just a cool story to, to, to walk away thinking, wow, Jesus can walk on water and Peter can walk on water too. 
It points to why he came. The mindful reader here will go back in their minds to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where the angel told Dave, uh, uh, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. This is desperation. He's crying out. He's not casually, I mean, in the storm, in the night, winds blasting the boat, taking the disciples all over the place. He's not just like, oh, Lord, save me. He's desperate. He knows he's gone. He's in danger. And like Job says, the Lord does not hear an empty cry. He hears a meaningful cry. And I wonder this morning, I've, I've come across, just in ministry, so many people who have said to me, I've called out for God to save me, and he hasn't saved me. I've cried out for Jesus to save me, and he doesn't save me. And I have to remind them, don't put this blame on God. Don't put this blame on Christ. Because he, he does not hear an empty prayer. There must be and has to be something deficient in you, either some kind of unwillingness to let go of sin, unwillingness to let go of a relationship or whatever it might be that's keeping you from Jesus, keeping you from God, that's holding you back ultimately. But the sinner wants to make the blame, wants to lay blame on God as to why he's not saved. Oh, friends, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That comes from the book of Joel. That comes from Romans chapter 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're crying and nothing's happening, I have to ask you, is your cry empty? Is it just a cry in the mouth or a cry truly coming from the depths of your soul, knowing that if he doesn't save you, you are lost. You are ruined. You are wrecked eternally. Call upon him. Even now, you don't have to wait till after the service. Call upon him now to save you. That's what Peter does. Lord, save me. Deliver me. Rescue me. And notice the response. Jesus' response is immediate. Immediate, verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith. I don't think that this is intended to be a harsh, scolding of Peter here, as many preachers do. And, and it's easy to take stuff like this and beat people over the head and for their unbelief and, oh, you of little faith. This is the same Jesus who had compassion on the crowds just earlier in that day. Do you think his compassion is any less for his disciples? Probably more for his disciples. And so this, this, this question, this, this, this question is not a, a, a a harsh rebuke, it is a compassionate question. More of a, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? I, could, I mean, I would suggest, maybe there's a chuckle here. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. This should take us back to the earlier account in Matthew chapter eight, where we saw that other storm. But this story ends so much differently. This ends so differently. Look at verse 33. This is the point of the story. And those in the boat worshipped him. 
They worshipped him. You remember in the earlier account, in Matthew chapter 8, they're asking, what sort of man is this? Well, now they know that this is not just a mere man. Because notice the confession in their worship at the end of verse 33. Truly, truly, certainly, surely, without any doubt, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the first time the disciples confessed Jesus as the Son of God in the Gospel of Matthew. You remember that the demons confessed that he's the Son of God. You remember that God the Father at his baptism confessed that he is the Son of God. Well, now the disciples are brought to this confession. And friends, again, these are not just stories to fancy our imagination and our curiosity. These stories are meant to bring you and I to worship him as well and to confess from the heart that truly he is the son of God who came to save us from sinking into the depths of hell for our sin to be lost forever in eternal punishment. He came to save. And when you call upon him, notice his response is immediate. Immediately he stretched out his hand to get Peter. What a savior. Again, this is, this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality here that when you call for mercy, he is quick to lay forth his saving hand and to bring you up from the pit of destruction. He's a God who saves. He is a savior who right now can save you from what you deserve. He's able and bless God that he is willing to save. They worship him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And so there we see the king's majesty, a portrayal of his divine sonship. You are the son of God. And now we come to the end where we come to verses 34 through 36 and we see the king's might, a portrait of his restorative power. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. Notice the chapter begins with Jesus' fame as it's related to Herod. The chapter ends again with Jesus' fame spreading throughout the land of Gennesaret. They recognize him, and immediately the news spreads like wildfire. He's here, the one who's been raising the dead, the one who's been casting out demons, the one who has been healing the sick, the one who has been healing all kinds of diseases, he's here. And so this news spreads. And they begged him, verse 36, that he might only, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. They knew this power, that all they had to do, I think what's happening here, by the way, is perhaps they've already heard the story of the woman who just touched the fringe of his garment. And that news spread like wildfire. This woman didn't even touch him, per se. He didn't even reach out to her. The way he reached out to Peter to grab him, he didn't even touch her. And so when she's moving through the crowd, this woman who had this flow of blood for 12 years, she knew in her mind, all I have to do is touch the fringe of his garment and I'll be made well. Perhaps that news spread so quickly and rapidly that these people know all they have to do is just touch a little bit of him. And notice the result at the end of the verse. And as many as touched it were made well. This is a portrait of his restorative power. The king in his might. 
They were made well. I mean, this chapter, friends, is just dripping with what he came to do. He came to be the bread to nourish us. He came to be the one who walks on the waves, defies our expectations to save us in our sin, in our plight, down to eternal perdition. He came to be the one who restores us in the end. As many as touched it were made well. They were made whole again. They were healed. Friends, this little phrase, made well, is what we are celebrating this morning. We have been made well. We can say with the hymnal, with the hymn writer, it is well with our souls. You see, all these healings, they really are just a portrait, a foretaste of the new creation to come. When there will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more death. I mean, he really came as the creator to inaugurate the new creation, to usher in the new creation. And we see a glimpse of it. We see a preview of that in people wrecked by disease and sickness being made well and instantly. That's what he came to do. And by the way, that's what we're going to see at the very end of the age. We're not going to see crowds wrecked by cancer. We're not going to see crowds who were wrecked by disease and different ailments. We're going to see a perfect humanity restored by the king's might in all of the king's majesty, floored by the king's mercy. That's where we're headed. And so I ask you this morning, are your eyes on the king? Are your eyes on his mercy, his majesty, his might? Is that the satisfaction of your soul? Is that the sweetness that brings about the sweetness of the day for you? Is the king and his beauty? Friends, amazing how the chapter can begin with such a dark, gruesome banquet, transition into a bountiful banquet in the wilderness, move us through the reality of the king's majesty is the God of creation, defying the laws of nature. And he ends with his ability to make people well. Is it well with your soul this morning? The fact is that it can be. It can be. If you cry out to the Lord your God, if you cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be restored, you will be made well, you will be reconciled to the living God.